everybody and welcome to What's the Story podcast, WTS283. My name is Danny Murray. And I'm Graham Merrigan. Merrow, how are you, my friend? Good, how are you? Doing great, man. Doing great. You're looking extremely fresh with your fresh fade. Fresh haircut, baby. Look at that. Glorious, man. Glorious. Will the beard be getting a trim now to go along with it? I know, I'll leave it now. I trimmed it over Christmas and I'll leave that probably till about March. Maybe baby paddies. Oh, Jesus, paddies? Yeah. I might I might trim it in at the sides and keep it a bit tidy, but um yeah. I feel very fresh and I feel good. Excellent. You're looking it. You're looking it. I did I did have, as you're well aware, I had a had a had a, a rash for the last two weeks. Uh, a vasculitis rash, which I thought was sepsis and meningitis. Obviously I can't uh, feel my 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 legs so um i was worried to death about what the hell it was and uh, it turned out it was a valis got a valis, vasculitis vasculitis that's what it oh, was yeah, you got, you got so i was on steroids for about seven days and uh the steroids were it was an interesting uh development i've never been on steroids before and it was fucking mad hang on hang on hang on hang on, hang on. You've never been on steroids before. No, I haven't. No, you you you're getting peds mixed up with steroids, man. I've been on peds. Okay, very well. I was going to say <laughs> we, won't, we won't mention the build up to Rio twenty sixteen again. Yeah, Coco Pops. <laughs> <laughs> um. So you you and Hulk Hogan are on the vitamins and everything's working. Man, it was four a.m. and it might as well have been four p.m. I was staring <laughs> at the ceiling. It was mental. Have you ever been on steroids? Uh, no, I don't believe I have actually. Ah, oh, Dan, it's mad. Like it's a mad feeling, and that your taste goes, and ah, oh, I, I don't know if I'd be, I'd be, if there was something wrong with me, I'd be like, yeah, give me the steroids because I, I'm showing signs of going in the right direction. But having yeah. said that, I wouldn't be rushing to to take them again. Like they're, it's just a mad, mad buzz in your body, like. You see, you won't you won't be injecting them into your left arse cheek to grow them pecs a bit more. No, absolutely not. I had to take six every morning, and I'd rather get rid of them. That's only half the ultimate warriors, dogs. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Put them in my flute. <laughs> but uh, you're 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 feeling better, and your uh, your rash Stop. is 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 fading away. Is it? I don't feel like I'm hundred percent just yet, but yeah, I'm getting there. I'm in the right direction. Glad, glad to hear it, glad to hear There was talk of being presented to A&E at one time, so I was up the walls at Worry. People close to me do call me Captain Worry, but I don't care. I was say, you, do, you don't do well uh, when there's a potential that there's some, some sort of ailment. <laughs> no, I don't, no. Yeah. Would, you, no. would you be a hypochondriac? I, I don't, I, no, I don't. No, I'm not a because a hypochondriac suggests that you have something when you don't. I right. start getting worried when there's confirmation that I do have something. Right, right. Okay, grand. Do you get me? I do. No, I understand. Yeah. I hope yeah. will go to the fucking doctor with a sneeze and think they have corona and bird flu like, all in one. Yeah. It would be very hard to get, to be fair. Yeah, it would. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I look, I, I, I'm I, starting to believe that COVID was a hoax, people. Sure, I haven't had it yet. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That's just had about five or six vaccines. <laughs> Listen, look, look at that arm. It's radioactive from the booster. Look you had your fourth booster this week, did you? I did, yeah, yeah. Uh, Tuesday, I got me, me, me latest, me tour booster, is it? Tour or fourth? Whatever, whatever the new vaccine is, whatever the new one that covers the new strains of it, 
Oh, I forget how many I've had. Oh, yeah, listen, it's uh, they just they, they text me and they were like, Listen, you're on a list. Do you want one? I said, Thanks very much, Mr. Anonymous HSE person. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll happily take the 5G in my arm. Um, so yeah, that's that's me. And you have better signal in your phone, oddly enough. I do, Graham. Yeah, I do. Uh, but I think that's because I move phone networks more so than that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, man, look, I'm, I'm all for it. I, I don't care. Give me a vaccine once a year in my arm, it's not doing any harm to me at all. And uh, as I said, I have not COVID, so I mean, for all has, I know, has, has your wonderful wife had COVID? She has, yeah, she. Tested, oh, I remember, yeah. She tested positive for COVID the day I came home from surgery uh, last summer. I remember, yeah. Uh, so, and that's how I'm amazed I haven't had it because, like, she picked me up from the hospital. I was in the car with her for an hour and a half in a confined space driving home. And yeah, I, ne- I never tested positive. I never got it. I had no symptoms or anything. So, there's people out there that are probably like, oh, you could have been one of those people that had it, but you just were asymptomatic. Oh, stop. Maybe I was. Yeah, it, isn't it? Isn't it? No, I'm not going to go down that road. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. There's rabbit holes and speed bumps everywhere there, man. Uh, yeah, I cannot stand those type of people. Anyway. Anyway, anyway. Should we just go to our guest? We do. So our, we, we recorded twice this week, and this is our first one uh, behind the curtain there. But anyway. Uh, no, that's not. We, like, so hang on. Right, you, we were talking about your beard at the start of this. Now, when I say this man's beard was absolutely... Oh, well, we're doing that intro. Yeah. Well, All right, you can do it. We're doing the other way. Yeah. My bad. Right. Well, look, I've set it up now for this. Just go with me here. For a well, then you go with it. All right. <laughs> no matter. Yeah. Right. Uh, look, this episode, lads, right? There's two. You're going to get them both very similar time frames. Don't worry. It's all good. Look, pretend me and Graham didn't just do a quick chat about the organization of this podcast on the floor <laughs> and as if we're a seamless professional outfit that knew what we were doing all along. <clears throat> I guess this week, speaking of Meryl's beard, this man has a glorious beard. Mine's looking well now at the moment, isn't it? It is looking quite good. It is. Yeah, I'm very happy with how it's looking at the moment. Go on, sorry. But our, our guest beard was, was far fuller. And uh, dare, dare I say, it looked luxurious. Yeah, I think well did. agree, yeah. Um, but yeah, we're, we're speaking to Patrick Harding, who is an elite performance coach who has worked and chartered physiotherapist and mental coach, man of many, there's many strings to this man's bow. Um, he currently is working with Formula One driver Alex Albon, who races for the Williams F1 team. Um, he was formerly with Red Bull and Scudero Toro Rosso, part of Red Bull Academy. Um, F1 is mad. It's mad, it's mad, it's mad. And the, the, what it takes to put those drivers in the car and what they have to go through is absolutely incredible. And we're going to talk to Patrick a little bit about that. But he's, he's gone to the Olympics. He's been um, a physio with Team GB at two Olympics. He's worked with Arsenal Football Club. Um, he's been a coach to Michael Conlon, to, to Paul Dunn. This man knows everything there is to know and then some when it comes to coaching elite athletes. And I'm delighted to say that Patrick joins us now. Patrick, thanks for your time, man. How are you keeping? Yeah, keeping well. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on. Oh, thank you, thank you. Uh, so, right, you, you have a bit of a, a Ric Flair, Jeff Floyd, limousine riding kind of lifestyle at times. So, <laughs> where are you at the moment? I can safely say that's the first time in my life I've been uh, likened to Ric Flair. Um, <laughs> and and the eight-year-old WWE fan uh, kind of likes it. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, look, there, there's a lot of travel. I mean... 
it's just getting started now. Just come back from LA from a, a preseason training camp, but probably looking at at least 31 weeks away this year in terms of schedule. Yeah. Um, now, now that they're not always full weeks, you know, you know, a lot yeah. of European races are Wednesday to Sunday, but but at least 31 weeks where there's travel involved. So, right. So then what we're at the, we're at the start of February now, right? So, yeah. Uh, for you right now, this is kind of it's it's preseason with Alex mm-hmm. Albon. So yeah. uh, Williams have their car launch next week. Does, yes, does, do you have to have Alex in in race suit trim, making sure that you know he's looking sharp? Like, what's, <laughs> what's going on now? Like, yeah, yeah, no, no, good, good question. Uh, he enjoys himself, or he did enjoy himself over Christmas. Excellent, um, love to hear that. <laughs> But 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 not in a crazy way, you know. He he likes his his food, but he's very well controlled. Um, yeah. Look, we have a, a a specific window of time where we can get a lot of load in from a training point of view preseason, and that's really January. Um, when we get to the end of January, a lot of the factory stuff really kicks off, and a lot of the promotional work, a lot of the media work, a lot of the branding work. So, the time that we have to dedicate to training while still managing his energy balance starts to dwindle quite a lot up until that first test and first race. So so we've got a lot of work in, in January. Um, and with that, his energy is low, but but from a fitness point of view, he's had a big hit for about three weeks. He's generally always in a good place. Like when I say he enjoyed himself over Christmas, he came back a kilo and a half heavier. And, you know, we did a two-week training camp in LA. And by the end of the camp, I would arguably say he was a little bit underweight. So that they're the margins we sit around. So, I, you know, He's an easy guy to manage in terms of 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 certainly the weight side, and and he's one of the young generation of, of drivers who makes a direct correlation between his physical fitness and how he turns up physically yeah. to it contributing to a more positive outcome from a performance perspective. So, from that point of view, I've got the buy-in. So he's in a pretty good he's in pretty good shape right now. What so we generally try and do is put a little bit of mass on him, so he he will look a little bit bigger. But but that's generally bulk. So like I'm conscious, probably people listening right who don't follow F1, right? So fitness level, like people are probably thinking, well, they're sitting in the car driving in circles. Like, how fit they yeah, are, yeah. right? Yeah. It's like it's insane. So like mm. if if like one kilo in a difference in weight results basically in lost time. So for him, when you're saying that, like he's probably a little bit underweight or whatever, does obviously the team probably have yeah. a way for him? Did I that they're saying this Ab- is absolutely, yeah. So look, I'll, you know, our engineers need to have a really good read on his weight across a race weekend. So, you know, I spend a lot of time predicting weights for engineers. So they'll say, you know, what do you predict his weight at the end of practice one? Certainly, what's his predicted end of weight of quality, and then what's his predicted end of weight of race? Um, when we're traveling, I every morning I take his Osmo, so I measure his urine for hydration levels, and I take his body weight. And wow. once I have those two, once I have those two reads, I can be within two hundred fifty grams of his of his weight, right. knowing what the environment conditions are going to be like, and knowing how his appetite's been, and knowing the physicality of the track. Um, we can be really, really close on weight. Now, from that perspective, you're right. That is about certainly from a qualifying perspective. Every half kilo on a kilo is time, time in the car. 
overall the drivers from a from a FIA perspective need to be 80 kilos or under in kit with their seat. Um, and after that, the teams start to get penalized with weight, extra weight in the car. So so there is a requirement for it. It, it is a weight-making sport. Yeah. It, it, it's not in terms of boxing or jockeys, etc. But but there is a, a clear um, requirement for him to be a certain weight. And when we know he's, you know, we try and start the season around 74 and a half, because I know over across the season, he'll lose at least a kilo and a half just by virtue of not having the time to, to train as much as we'd like and, and get after the type of training that we'd like to keep that muscle mass on. So he will lose and strip out. So it becomes a little bit easier by the end of the season. But but when you, yeah, like I said, there's, there's kind of two considerations. One is how he turns up on a race weekend in terms of the overall weight requirement, but also then from a strategic point of view and time in the car, knowing how his weight's going to be so that the engineers have a clear read of what the car is going to weigh by the end of sessions. So the other thing then is, and you've mentioned like muscle mass and whatever there, and I'm saying this now as somebody who wants strain their neck on the wall says, right? The G force yes. that these lads go through, the, the the muscles in their neck have to be mm. like there's lads in F1 who probably have stronger necks than fellas have stronger arms in the gym. Like. Yeah, I mean, look, we yeah we do all our preseason testing and we did it out in the states. So if you think, so it's called a brake test, basically increase the load until he can't hold that load anymore. His side flexions left and right were 76 kilos, 78 kilos, and his extension, which is his braking, was 83 kilos. So his his brake test on his neck extension was more than most people's 1RM bench. Um, and, And that's just nature. So if you take a sequence of corners, at Silverstone through Magus and Beckett's. Yeah, yeah. So there's four corners through there, really high-speed corners. You know, you don't really take your foot off. One sequence through there is about 140 kilos on the neck. And that's just one sequence of four corners on a full track, one lap, and he might do 120, 130 laps a race weekend. So there is a strength requirement now. Now, now obviously, the only time we would be hitting anything close to those levels of of kilos are high G incidences, which mm. we hope don't happen very often. So if we, we obviously get a good read of, of where his maxes are, but but then we can extrapolate some of his endurance capacity from that and we test his endurance capacity as well. So it's more about his ability to be able to withstand repeated um loads across a, a race weekend. Now being being upfront and honest about and and me and Alex talk about this, what we're really doing in preseason is getting him ready for test so that the, the pain of test is minimized. Because mm-hmm. once he's had three or four days in the car, then his car conditioning takes over. And that's what really gets him ready for race weekend. So you're you're kind of existing in that space before he gets in the car, before he gets into a race weekend. Um, and you're really just preparing him for that that first couple of days of testing. During a race weekend, like what what type of calories are you thinking that he's losing? Oh, you know what? A big issue of ours is actually getting enough calories into him across a race weekend. Um, you know, in a race, he's definitely doing five, six thousand calories at least, more maybe. <laughs> if there's some, <laughs> if there's some environmental conditions, you know, the track temperature in Hungary last year was fifty six degrees. Now he's sitting in three layers of fire retardant kit, balaclava, helmet, gloves. He's sitting on a seat which is pretty much on the engine. He's got 
you know, again, it, it's measured out, but anything between half a litre and a litre of fluid to drink for that entire race. So, you know, the calorie load is huge. He, in Singapore, he can lose anything up to three kilos in a race. Um, and that's muscle glycogen <laughs> and hydration. So, the, the you know, we talk about Look fitness levels. There's, there's a huge endurance capacity, cardiovascularly. There, there's the anaerobic capacity that you need because your heart rate exists at, at high levels for extended periods of time. There's the, there's the strength element for sure. But then there's just the ability to withstand the environmental conditions, which is generally the heat. And, and you know, it's at those latter stages of races where, you know, the car is probably at its worst in terms of tire condition. You know, your fatigue is setting in. You're coming down to, you know, hopefully a point in the race where you're making decisions that get you into the points or out of the points. And it's where your cognitive function needs to be at its highest. And it's actually when you're at your most depleted. So, so we build a lot of his physical capacity so that in those latter stages of races, his physical conditioning is not affecting his decision-making or, or his technical performance. So you, you're trying to create a platform whereby actually his, his mind has, a mind and his technical ability are not impeded by how he turns up physiologically. It's, it's bananas. My ignorance, my ignorance in all of this, I would never have taught the level of but like I, I just wouldn't have taught any of that. Yeah, so it's like an endurance athlete in a way, I suppose. Is it like yeah, yeah, absolutely, like, absolutely. It's it's absolutely. and and if, if I'm on the lot of... sorry, sorry about it. I was just gonna say, no, I'm you can... seven and it's a bit warm. I'm reaching for the aircon. The windows going down. Gas full of sipping me water. These lads are just it's it's mad. Like. Yeah, and I, and I think what you you know we when you look at a lot of sports, particularly say take Olympic based sports where there's generally one biomotor physical performance that determines whether you're successful or not. Okay. So one element of physical fitness, you need to be very good at that. So sprinters don't run marathons, marathon runners don't run sprints, etc. So what you've got in a, in a driver is somebody who needs a really large aerobic capacity because they exist in the car for extended periods across a race weekend. Like I talked about already, they need a really strong anaerobic capacity because their heart rate exists 170 plus for extended periods through qualifying and through a race. You need to be strong physically to be able to withstand the G-forces, but also you need to have good muscular endurance capacity to be able to repeat those strengths over and over again across a race weekend. And then you need the capacity to be able to withstand 40 degree temperatures, 50 degree temperatures for extended periods of time and to still make good decisions cognitively while being able to react with speed and with precision and with excellent memory recall so there's there's huge technical elements to it but there's also massive elements of aerobic anaerobic and muscular strength capacities that you need to have just as your foundation to perform mm. you know we you, you see them you know you'll see it in testing when when the pads come out and the foam pads go in it's because even just from a neck point of view being out of car for eight weeks their neck decondi- deconditions so much um yeah. that you know they need a little bit of support for those first couple of days. Remember, uh, Alex, Alex is not allowed to use those. <laughs> you, you, you're a, you're a, a strict taskmaster because I remember um was it uh, Nico Hulkenberg uh, filling in? What, I can't mm-hmm. remember who he's filling in for exactly, but yeah, his biggest was problem, Lance. Was it? I think it might have been actually, and that's yeah. <laughs> I remember that's what you're saying. The biggest problem was his neck because just like yeah. that, being in the car for that long. Um. We'll, we'll kind of we'll, we'll we'll go on tangents and we'll go on waves here. But I'm just curious, then as well, because I mean, 
you're you're from Leash originally. So yes, did you ever did you ever have like an interest in F1? Do you ever have an interest in getting into tiny bit? Because there's not even a go kart track down here, man. Do you know what I mean? So it's quite the jump. And, and you know, what? I still don't. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, like like a lot of people probably you know watched the first three or four laps of a race when it was on terrestrial TV just to see what had happened and then after three or four laps went on to the football. Um, that's me. <laughs> and, and yeah, and 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 that's as much as my interest existed in it. And oh, right up until the the point where I got a gig in in Formula Two, yeah. um, that was my level of interest and knowledge. Obviously, I you know I knew who the, some of the drivers were. And, Etc. But I wasn't an avid follower of it. I think what what Formula One and and I a caveat to that is I've always moved sports in my role, and and yeah. that's what's really kept what I do fresh. Certainly from a a learning point of view in terms of the technical, but also understand the physiology of different sports. Once you understand the physiology, then then putting the plan in place to get them to that point where they can compete at the top level is something that really drives my passion and keeps it fresh for me. So I've never been afraid to move sports. I've always looked at every opportunity for its merit and, and thought, okay, is, is there an opportunity to learn something different here? Um, so that didn't scare me. And and I was at Arsenal at the time mm. and I'd actually been approached by Michael Conlon and Paul Dunn. So I'd been working with an individual boxer and an individual golfer and I, I come from a lot of squad-based sports. And actually what I was really enjoying was the opportunity to work one-on-one with one individual and not just be patching somebody up week on, week off just to get onto the pitch for the next game. We were sitting down and going, well, how do we actually make you better at what you do? What are the gaps between you and the top people in your game right now? And how do we fill those gaps? And that's that's what really excited me. And I finished my master's in strength and conditioning. I'm a, I'm a chartered physiotherapist to start off with. And just really randomly, someone slid into my DMs on Twitter. And and basically this guy who I didn't know at the time, who was had been previously the head of the UK Strength and Conditioning Association, was working with a company called Hints of Performance. And he put out a tweet saying, looking for physios with experience in elite sport with S&C qualifications. I had gotten on really well with two of my lecturers in my SNC masters. They both knew this guy, tweeted them back saying, tag me in it, speak to this guy. He's Olympics, Olympic experience, blah, blah, blah. So dropped me a DM, DM and just said, look, I don't know what your work situation right now is, but I've got some interest in roles working with individual athletes if you'd be keen to apply. So I was like, right, happy to have a, a conversation. He kind of said, well, actually, the interviews are starting this week it's basically a case of just interviewing and then we'll, we'll kind of tell you at the end what you're interviewing for. I was like, is this some sort of scam? I, I mean, if he starts asking for my bank details, I'm gone. But <laughs> did, did four rounds of really intense interviews. And then at the last interview, they just said, look, there's a level of confidentiality because we supply coaches to Formula One, Formula Two drivers, um, and we'd love you to come on board with one of our drivers when when the right role comes up. They offered me a gig in Formula One maybe two weeks later, and the only caveat to it was that I would have to give up my work with Mick and Paul. And I was really enjoying that, and I committed to the season with them. I said, look, it just doesn't fit. And they said, no problem, we appreciate your honesty. Came back to me maybe four weeks later, and they had a job with a Formula 2 driver, Tadasuka Makino, 
who was a Japanese driver and was on the Honda Dream Project. Uh, he'd gotten a seat in Formula 2 and it was half the races, so half the travel, less time commitment, so more opportunity to keep the stuff running on simultaneously with Mick and, and Paul. So, yeah, took it on. Didn't have a clue. Um, learned quickly, which I've always been able to do. Um, and had a really good year with Tata. He moved back to Japan to do Super Formula and Super GT. And actually, that happened to be Alex's Formula 2 year. Um, so him, Lando and George were fighting for the for the championship into the last race. And Alex got the call to go to Toro Rosso that summer. And uh, he had no trainer. And I'd kind of gotten to know him and his his family across that season. And he, he, he dropped me a call and said, would you be interested in working together, moving to Toro Rosso? We sat and we had a conversation about our philosophies of life and, and performance and what that looked like. And I guess how we wanted to represent ourselves in that kind of world and whether our values fitted together. Um, and it did. And we've been working together for five years now. And I'd say the relationship is as strong as ever. Amazing, man. It's, it, and, it's and, and that's it. Just opportunity. Like, like I said, just being open to opportunities and having what, conversations. What's the transition and, like when you're working at Arsenal with a team to individual sports people? What's the transition like with that? It's a really good question. It, it's getting your head around the level of responsibility because I went from being, okay, a physiotherapist with other skills at Arsenal to suddenly working with Alex and being everything. Yeah. And, you know, you know, we, you know, my family and my wife laugh when they hear about some of the stuff I need to deal with when I'm working with Alex. And it's, yeah, I'm a physio. Yeah, I'm a strength and condition coach. And I've since then realized the level of, you know, I guess the importance of being able to execute mentally in those environments. And I've gone back and done my mental performance coaching qualifications so I'm a mental performance coach, but I'm also a friend and I'm a shoulder to cry on and I help manage his family and I help manage some of his PR commitments and his media commitments. And I'm a gatekeeper for some of that when it comes from the team. And he says, can you bounce that back for me? And I fight his corner when it needs to be fought, but also I challenge him when he needs to be challenged and I'm folding his laundry and I'm making sure he's up in up out of bed in the morning on time and making sure he's got his suitcase. You know, it's yeah. I joke with him. An au pair for an adult. So I think I think it was what changed certainly from a skills point of view was how how broad the role actually was. But then from a human element, it was it was building a lot stronger of a relationship because the intensity of the relationship demanded that. But also because the level of intensity in terms of his learning curve and I guess the strategies he used emotionally when he stepped into Formula One and being able to challenge those strategies across the last three or four years, not just in terms of his ability to perform at his highest level in that environment and manage the demands and the stress and the pressure and everything else that goes that with that in terms of the public scrutiny, but just for him to be a happier, healthier individual. Um, mm. and, and the intensity of relationship that that needs to have to be able to challenge those in a really open and honest way to be able to help him to develop as an individual. And, I, and I'll say this with anybody that I meet first and foremost, in terms of people contacting me to work with them, as I'm here to develop individuals, the sport is secondary right. because happy, healthy individuals perform well. The physical stuff is so easy. 
I mean, if you've got somebody who's motivated and, and connected to the physical work and they're not afraid of that, that stuff is so easy. The, the, the winning elements are how can you handle this environment? How do you make those decisions that mean success or failure? And are you comfortable being uncomfortable in looking at those failures and being really open and honest with yourself and being asked really difficult questions about how can you do that better? And is that just the execution of tasks or is there something in the way here? Is there a barrier that you've got from your childhood or from your adolescence or a strategy that you use that is just not working right now? And do you have the balls to be able to change that and to be able to really look at yourself and say, that doesn't work for me right now. And I know where that comes from. Let's deal with that so that I can deal with the present. It's, it's fascinating. So, it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. 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 And, and I had, I had, know, um, Patrick, when I, I was doing, I was on a fast track program for the Rio Paralympic Games in Paralympic powerlifting. Amazing. Yeah. I had access to a sports psychologist um, throughout the, the qualifying and stuff like that. And yeah. like, what you were saying there, I resonated in the sense that once you're making a happy athlete, a happy person, their performance is going to be better. And it's just that the benefits of, you know, lack of funding, obviously, which is a different conversation yeah. with Paralympics levels. But I went from doing my own thing to having access to other uh, resources and the the, lev- the 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 changes in performance is overnight like. Yeah, and, and look, we can talk about that in terms of, you know, I've I've gone to two Olympic Games as a lead physio for Team GB, and I was full-time at the EIS for five and a half years. And call it what you like, you know, sports washing or whatever. But the, the system that the UK have set up around their athletes in terms of access to every type of practitioner that that individual athlete might need to be successful is absolutely incredible. So the, the structure helps to create the athletes that are successful at games. And you and you go and you watch the games and Team GB are knocking gold medals, silver medals, bronze medals out of the park. But how many athletes do we in Ireland miss because there's just that one little element of performance that we're not nailing because they don't have the expertise there to support them in that, in that growth area. And and you know, you have to cast and you have to cast the net wide and you, you have to create a system whereby you, you, you take in a certain number of athletes because there's only a certain few of those that will actually make it. But certainly in Ireland I feel like we're either waiting for this gem of success and then we jump on board and we support that one individual, or you know, for whatever reason, and, and probably not to do with the Irish Institute of Sport or, or the Irish Olympic Committee. There a hub develops of high performance, and and then we support that. We're not creating yeah. the hubs. We're not. It's we're not reactive, creating the though, access. isn't it? Instead of being proactive, hundred percent, hundred percent. And you can see that Absolutely. with the boxing, like the success of the boxing, it always seems to happen as a reactory thing. Like even our own local uh, boxing club has. To recently two elite boxing championships and Jack Marley and, and, and Sean Marley and then they went back to their boxing club two days later and, and bureaucracy has closed down their boxing club you know yeah. those little things when you've just won a, a national championship on your road to Paris for, for the Olympic Games and bureaucracy is shutting down your facility to where you train that can knock you yeah. that can knock your psychology for a week or two yeah. whatever. Like you shouldn't have to be dealing with that nonsense 
and and there's incredible people in boxing like John Conlon, like the people who've gone before him, who who are who are creating the structure for for these athletes to be successful. So mm. that's a well established system. Um, but the, uh, you know, are there any other systems in Ireland that produce the same level of athlete that are as well formed and, and well designed as that? I'm not sure, and I'm, I'm obviously making some assumptions here because I haven't worked in the Irish system for a very very long time, but. I certainly think, you know, like anything, you have to invest heavily to get the outcome. It's it's not rocket science, you know. And you know, and one of the reasons why I I moved with Alex was, you know, we laughed about it already. I didn't necessarily have an interest in Formula One, but it's one of the sports where the budget is there to create a position where I can have that time with a young individual to help him on that journey. And mm-hmm. and the Alex that I'm working with right now is so far from the Alex that moved to Toro Rosso five years ago. And and not in he was a anything negative about Alex right then, but he was just a really young, immature, twenty-two-year-old who had had some incredible life experience. So in some ways was very mature, but had all of these strategies that he was using from his past. Just happened to be an incredibly talented driver who was so unbelievably driven to be successful. Like, I mean, there's two people, two or three people in my career. Liam Heath, who is Olympic champion, five-time world champion, has got uh, one, two, three, four Olympic gold medals in his four Olympic medals in his career, one gold. Michael Conlon and Alex, they're up there. They, there there's just this level of of work ethic, and he had that. Um, but he was in his own way at times. And and they were the strategies that we need to work through. And and that stuff isn't in the gym. That stuff isn't on the track. That stuff is in the hotel room after something's gone really wrong. And mm. we're saying, how do we deal with this? What do you what do we need to do the next time to make sure that we're not sitting in this hotel room at half eleven at night trying to work through it? And you know, the time that I spend with him is the reason partly for his development, partly is his openness and willingness to uh, be like we talked about being uncomfortable and being asked difficult questions and and his awareness of himself and he's a really emotionally astute guy and and you know we've got to the point now where he asks me questions which is phenomenal and he'll ask some really insightful questions or he'll bring up a really difficult topic and we'll talk about it for three or four hours on a car journey or on a flight or or in a coffee shop and and that's his level of maturity now and it's no you know the Alex got that promoted to Red Bull, you know, 12 races into his rookie career, if that's, if the Alex now stepped into that seat, he'd still be in it right now. Yeah. And, and that's the learning of him. It, it was promotion before he had the strategies to deal with that environment. Nothing to do with the technical. Uh, absolutely. He's, he's one of the most talented drivers on the grid and there's no denying that. And I think, you know, 99% of F1 fans were thrilled to see him back in the sport last season yeah. after the kind of year you know but um, I'm, I'm curious if I'm going to ask kind of a, que- a question towards you Patrick in terms of you've touched on it there like you've you've, you've been to Olympics you've worked at Arsenal boxers F1 all that kind of stuff but like for you in terms of how you're managing the situation or what's going through your head rather it's you know walking down the tunnel at the Emirates for, ahead of a match and what you're thinking about the guys being working with there you know, Alex getting into the car before the lights go green or, or walking out Madison Square Garden with Mick Conlon. For you, the mental preparation for you in terms of what you need to do for your guy, how how different is that for you? 
It's it's for me, it's always been about knowing what that environment needs from you in that moment. Mm. And and that comes from really knowing what your athlete needs from you in those moments. And that comes from experience, that comes from awareness, that comes from me working through a lot of my own stuff. Um and doing that, you know, I've had my own mental performance coach for the last six years. I still work with him now. And and we've gone through a lot of difficult stuff that I've been carrying around with me. And, and his point to me was, how can you expect to show up for somebody else when you're not showing up for yourself? Um, so I've been on a journey myself. So it, it's really about putting all that together and knowing what that environment needs. Sometimes with Alex and sometimes with me, that environment needs my energy. So I'll bring a little bit of energy to it, whether that's just talking rubbish about something or bringing something funny into the conversation or or triggering something that I know is a happiness for them and then having a little chat about that and, and lifting that mood a little bit. And sometimes I just don't need to touch it. Sometimes I just need to stand in the corner and shut my mouth. And they might look at me every now and again and you just give a little nod being like, yeah, that's good. Like we're ready. I don't need to be involved here. Um. You know, on the grid with Alex, there's times I can see, not so much anymore, he's very good now, but certainly at the start, where he will, I could see him going back into his own mind and, and, and running through processes. And Alex is a natural driver. He's a field driver. Everything that Alex does is because he's just so in tune with the car and the track. He's incredible in those moments. So the more conscious he becomes, the less unconscious he is. And he's, and he's stepping away from where his strengths are. So there's times on the grid where, you know, I can see that happening and he's going quiet and, he's, and I can see by his eyes. So I'll go over and I'll break that. And, you know, there's been times where after races, engineers have come up to me and been like, what were you two talking about on the grid before you got in the car? And I'm like, just rubbish. <laughs> like, I can't I can't even say on the podcast some of the stuff <laughs> we talk about. But but I want, I need to bring him back to now. He, yeah. He's gone from me there. And, and, the last thing we need is him getting into the car, really consciously going through things, checking boxes. Done. You're, we're here. We're on the grid. Put your helmet on. Let's go. We've run through all the visualization work. It's all in there. So get out of your own way. Let's just access all of that natural stuff that we know is your strength. Yeah. Um, and, and we talk a lot about that, about being present and finding his flow state. And, and a part, a really strong part of his flow set state is his presence here now not two laps forward, not two races before. It's about, about this second, this moment, that's what changes this race. So so we need to access that. So like I said, it, it's really about being for them in the space that they need right in that moment. But I also have a really good understanding of what I need each day to turn up for them. And we talked about that a little bit. I need exercise. I need some good sleep. And I need my own space. Um, and actually, both, and what works for me and Alex is, we're both actually introverts by nature. So I get my energy from being on my own and so does he. And we spend a lot of time together, but we both know that there's parts of the race weekend where we just need to be away from each other and actually just need to be away from other people. And for me, that's generally the hour in the gym in the morning, whether the hotel gym is absolutely rubbish or not. Just getting down there or getting out for a run or just have, and I'll meet you for breakfast and then, and, and I've had conversations where we've say been in a team hotel and just by virtue of people being friendly and being nice and, you know, I've got my earphones in, but they're coming up to me in the morning. I'm like, this is my time. I'll speak to you at breakfast or I'll speak to you at the track. 
because this this space this right now is is my preparation for the next 12 hours and if i need that energy for the race day then this is me preparing but on top of that are all the really not like really you know obvious stuff like i need to sleep well and i need to eat well and i need to be hydrated i i need to travel well so i need to stick to my jet lag plan and i need to do all those things that i know creates the environment for me to be able to perform for them so there's two elements like i said there's, there's knowing what they need but also knowing what i need and executing on both of that i see you see it so often you know young practitioners inexperienced practitioners being in a room and not understanding what that room needs yeah and that can actually be a really destructive thing and i've had athletes before coming up to me going oh what is what's that guy doing here like really pissing me off and i'm like in this moment where you're just about to go and compete your attention now is towards an energy in the room that you don't like because that person is drawing that attention there. Energy flows where attention goes. Now your attention is not on performance. Mm. And that can be really destructive in that environment. And and as a young practitioner, you really got to be aware of how you turn up in these spaces. And it's always better to be quiet than loud. Yeah, yeah. The... You mentioned out of jet lag, and we sort of touched on the travel uh, at the start of it. But like, how how much of an impact does that have on you as well? Then, because obviously you're saying you're spending more time with Alex and your, your own family and everything else. You know, to traveling. Mm. Like, geez, even the first race of the season in Australia, mm. it's, it's a Bahrain testing. Then over to Australia. Well, we go Bahrain test, Bahrain race, Saudi Arabia race, and. Australia race and now in 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 the F1 wisdom instead of just making that a triple header because you're already halfway there they've put a week in between each yeah so you know I'll go Bahrain test race back Saudi back Australia back Jesus insane but yeah wow like back home yeah back to London yeah wow it's it's an, yeah. it's, it's a are you in London now Patrick yeah, I've been in London for about 13 years now. Right. Yeah. So it's not home, but it's where I live. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's heavy I mean, travel though, isn't it? it? It is, but, but the reality of it is one, if you, tr- if you travel well, it's doable. Uh, and if you understand what your body needs from a jet lag point of view, it's very, very doable. But if you don't, then, you know, I do, I'll do the two weeks around Bahrain and I'll come home. If I don't do that, that two-week trip turns into a six-week trip. And that's a huge chunk of time to be away. That's a month and a half or 12 months to be away, straight off the bat, first three races. Yeah. So while, while the travel sounds hectic, you know, honestly, if a flight isn't over 10 hours now, it doesn't even register. It, it's like getting on a, a, an hour flight back to Dublin. Well. Honestly, it just doesn't even register. In terms of the actual travel of it, or the impact on my body, yeah, it, it, it's it's easier to travel west than it is to travel east because it's a phase short. You just have to stay awake a bit longer. Sorry, phase delay. When you're going east, it's a phase short. It's a lot difficult, more difficult to get your circadian rhythm in in line. So so traveling bigger distances east is a lot more difficult anyway. But. It, I'd rather be tired at home for two days than be sitting in a hotel in Saudi for an extra two days. Yeah, 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 yeah. Are, are there any not, races not this... on the calendar that you see and you go, oh, Jesus, no, just don't want to go there? 
<laughs> yeah, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say that before the camera even starts. Because <laughs> they're generally they're generally not the countries you want to be want to be discerning about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of the questions. Yeah, that but yeah, Schnau- Schnaudis in Namibia. <laughs> well, I don't know what you're talking about. Neither do I. Your microphone cracked up there, Mel. Yeah, uh, sorry. One, one of the questions we always ask uh, when we get uh, athletes or trainers or, or whoever on is around. What their what their go to cheat meal is not for any particular reason other than me and Meryl like to indulge ourselves. So like if you were let's say you've you've been away for three weeks or whatever and you're coming home and you're like oh you know I'm giving myself a bit of a day off here. What, what's your go to? Yeah, I I love Japanese food, but but where I live in London, um, is an area called Tooting and it's like eighty percent Indian and Pakistani. So the Indian and Pakistani food here is insane. So, like a good old curry is hard oh, to beat. Yeah. So, yeah, um, I actually had some family over the weekend, and we took them to our favorite um curry rest uh, curry restaurant, Indian restaurant here, and just so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I am uh, devastatingly our favorite Japanese closed down recently, and they did a katsu curry that was like oh. my Chris was like my crystal meth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah I love katsu curry. Yeah, yeah, sushi as well. So yeah, sushi. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So th- that would probably be a, a good curry. I mean, nice. it's yeah. Yeah, what it's would Alex eat? Me, Alex likes his food as well. He pizza. He he's a a nice thin crust pizza man. Yeah, yeah. I'd um, say after a race because you lose so much calories that just load load of pizzas into him. Yeah, look, we had that conversation, and especially across race weekends, you know, because it's probably one of the things that we struggle with in terms of him getting enough calories on board across the race weekend, just because his appetite kind of disappears. So there's times where I'll be like, look, you can kind of have whatever you want here. Um, It's got us in trouble before, but, you know, there's this perception that drivers on a race weekend should be eating nothing, only lettuce and berries. and, And I'm like, no, have a couple of hash browns with your scrambled eggs, or I love you know, have a couple brown. of sausages, or yeah, I mean Franz Tost from uh, Toro Rosso now Alcantara yeah. does not like hash browns. <laughs> told him so Eat it away. on Alex's on Alex's breakfast. Um, that was many years ago. Yeah. Um, but but at that stage, you know, there's there is an element of each. He just needs fuel in his body. Yeah. Um, now he's not out getting them a large Mackey's meal, but. There, there's times where we just need some calories. So if you, there's a, you know, an apple pie for dessert with some custard, knock yourself out. Me um, I was going to say, that's really yeah, the I think that's probably why I went straight to that. It's what I mean as well. <laughs> yeah. And I don't necessarily have a sweet too. I'm savoury over sweet, but yeah, it's oh, hard to be. I think, I think it was yeah. Kimmy Roykin and used to be mad for the ice cream. It was, some, it was somebody who used to There was lots of things Kimmy, Kimmy was mad for. <laughs> Yeah, the 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 Mick Conlon connection, and you yeah. uh, you were part of the the Madison Square Garden, um, fight and everything. Like, what was that experience like in general for you? Was that what was he, in, as in his Nikita Walker wasn't he as well? Was was that was Finn Balor walked out with him as well at that one? I think. Yeah, yeah, and and subsequently got to know Finn quite well. Um, He's been. He was at the race in Mexico this year. Really lovely guy. I mean, 
gentleman. His, gentleman. his story is incredible. Yeah, oh, like yeah. We, 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 you know, we, we talk about times. Yeah, he's, he's a gem. Yeah, just like going out to Japan to wrestle just because it was what he loved, and like yeah. just he did the RT documentary about him, Patrick. He's done one, yeah. He, there was an RT documentary about him a few years ago before he made it. In the right, WWE. see if I can. Um, might be on the RT player and it, it documents his time in Japan it's just before he signs to New York um, right it's just brilliant but he's such an such a decent nice skin yeah, yeah. unbelievable just mm. one of the most grounded yeah unassuming humble guys I've ever met yeah and just absolutely. really just a really genuine nice guy the um, first time we yeah. interviewed him, Patrick, we interviewed him on New Year's Day, uh, in 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 person, and I had to pick him up in me Ford Focus, uh, in, <laughs> in his man Dasgaf, in Bray. It was surreal. Yeah, just yeah. sitting in the car at the traffic lights. All right, how are you, bud? <laughs> <laughs> and he's huge. Yeah. WWE at the minute. Oh, like, huge. Yeah, it's merchandise. Yeah. out the door. But he's 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 a bad guy now. So, um, I was texting yeah. him you enough, and he was uh. He was saying that he's he's loving his new role. Absolutely. Yeah. The demon. Yeah, he's, he's Man, an eight-pack. Uh, no, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, he's in good shape, to be fair. Um, and I loved it. I only just saw a clip of it on his uh, Instagram about coming, his walkout, and he chose to do the LGBTQ That's plus right, yeah. walkout instead of the demon. In Saudi Arabia, and it's Wasn't weird. Yeah, yeah, and it, it was like that triggered something for me, which was, and and when we talk about sport, you know, and, and when I'm having these really difficult conversations with Alex about life and the impact of sport on life, and and actually how fundamentally it, it it's just about being happy, and it's like you just happen to be good at doing something that people like to watch. But what's your impact going to be on the world? Like, what's your impact going to be in terms of not even the world? Because that's too big. You know, what kind of brother are you going to be? What kind of daddy are you going to be? What kind of son are you going to be? Because in 40 years' time, that's going to be a hell of a lot more important than you've won a couple of races in Formula 1 40 years ago and nobody remembers who you are. Because real development is about yourself. And just to see somebody, you know, knowing his story and, and having that connection in terms of just knowing how nice a guy he is and just for him to be you know probably the biggest moment in his career at that stage and knowing you know all those years in Japan on these small shows or you know all those years to get to where he is right now and choosing to use that moment for somebody else yeah. just actually quite triggered me it yeah. was a really powerful little clip and messaged him straight away I was like like wow like that that's what being and actually with influence is all about absolutely you know yeah it's always incredible yeah he's so humble like so humble yeah Brad, we're, we're, we're running out of time with you but uh before we let no you stress um just in terms of kind of conversation because the, the mental aspect of it is something that stood out and kind of what we're talking about with you today and i'll be curious in terms of you, you kind of gave us an insight into the physical preparation and everything you're doing with alex pre-season but looking at the season ahead, then mentally speaking, how how do you try get in the zone, and, and how do you, you figure like right season ahead? Here's our goals. Here's what we're going to do. And, and build yeah, 
Look, there's it, it's a little bit fluid because there's there's a huge unknown, which is where is the car going to be at this year? Yeah. Um, and and there was a real shift in mentality last year, which actually was was quite positive in terms of how we reframed it. But the one thing that the Formula One uh, format allows is for you to create success no matter where you are on the grid. So qualifying is a huge opportunity. And what went from being in the top three in quality now is we get out Q1, that's a good weekend. Yeah. We get close to the top of Q2 or into Q3, that's a mega weekend. And, and when we were at Red Bull, it was really each session was building towards the race and the race was the pinnacle of the race weekend. What we do now at Williams is we need to take each session in isolation because there's some sessions that are going to be good and there's some sessions that just aren't going to work for us. So when we say, right, we got our Q1, we got the top end of Q2, race didn't necessarily go our way, that's a good weekend. You executed on quality. Okay, we did everything that we could in the race. What could we have done different? Let's analyze that. Sometimes there's just nothing. And then that's okay. That's a good weekend, right? There's race weekends where we don't get out Q1 in the race. You know, not great. We're thinking, right, was that us? What What is within our control? What can we do differently? Or maybe there's conversations you need to have with engineers. What are those conversations? How do we tee those up? So the shift changes. And, and what Alex needs to do now is learn to be more of a leader. He needs to lead a team. Um, and then there's race weekends where we'll do well in quality and he'll sneak into the points. And that's a mega weekend. You know, so when we were at Red Bull, if he finished P9, the world was falling apart around us. Not from our perspective, but from everyone else. Mm-hmm. Now we finish P9 and it's like, right, get the champers out. But, but we're not outcome focused. For us, it's about delivery of what's in your control. So, you know, just a couple of times this way, this year, we laugh about it. Where was the last one? Oh, like, you know, without being too blatantly obvious, that wasn't the best Williams car that has ever been produced. It was a it was a tricky, difficult, not so quick car this year. Some of the things he did in that car this year left me like jaw on the floor stuff. There was a quality recently where he missed out on Q3 by maybe two or three hundreds. And we were going into the race weekend going, this is going to be tough. Like this track really doesn't suit the style of car we've got. And he just pulls out this performance. And he came back into the garage and we've got out because we've got to go to the FIA to get weighed. And the garage is pretty flat because we've missed out on Q3 by two or three hundreds, which is fine. And I'm just laughing going, I have no idea how you've just done that. And he's like, I can see him chuckling in his helmet and I can see his eyes. I know he's laughing. And he kind of took his helmet off. He was like, somebody died in here. And I was like, I don't know, mate, but that was incredible. And he was like, yeah, I was really happy with that. Yeah. And and that's us. We we know what success looks like. So so we can tune into that. And there's times he'll get out of the car and he'll have missed out on Q3 and have gone, I dropped some time there. Okay, let's chat about that later. And and it won't be so happy because he knows there was more there. Yeah. So that that's the performance element. It's so for us it's about execution and taking the wins where we can take them from. We 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 don't predict anything. We don't try and predict anything. That's just scoreboard pressure. That just gets in the way of you being present. And and certainly in qualifying, even down to, you know, a lot of the drivers will have a delta on their steering wheel, which tells them whether they're up and down on the required time or their quickest time. And we took that off his steering wheel. 
because the second he started looking at his Delta, the second he wasn't driving the car for fuel, it was him thinking about what he'd just lost in the last corner or what he was up with two corners to go. And then you're not present anymore. And that was the biggest, one of the biggest shifts in terms of his delivery and qualifying was him just being able to be in the car in that moment and going by feel. Yeah, love it, love it. Um, will, will, will your head make an appearance in Droid of this year? They, strangely, they didn't do a lot of it this year. <laughs> um, so I'm not sure. Honestly, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I felt like at Red Bull we were mic'd up every race weekend, but but this year I, I can't even remember doing anything really with them. So, was and that, that's that's fine by me. Was that strange for you when that kind of because you, you kind of made an appearance in it, and suddenly there was I, I remember just on social media everyone kind of reacting to there's an Irish fill in twelve to one. Yeah, I mean, there there is in that. I have no interest in that side of things. Yeah. Like it couldn't be anything further from, from where it where I sit in terms of my values. Is it a distraction um, overall? Like it, it it was at times, but they were very good at that point about yeah. me just going, This is this is not for you and shutting the door. And we were mic'd up all the time, but if they didn't have video footage and mic, they couldn't use it. And if you had a conversation and you were like, Oh crap, I've got my mic on, you could just say that's not for edit. And it didn't go in. And, and generally, the teams got a look at what the episodes were going to look like. So they could challenge things if 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 it was something that they were, they were not happy to go in. Um, but it is bizarre, you know, and, you know, naturally, they're creating stories. So things get put in places that yeah, yeah. may not necessarily be the chronological order. And, you know, it's the East Enders of sport. Um, <laughs> well, what you, what you, or Fair City, if you want to be <laughs> yeah, geographically yeah. correct, keep it local, yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. I get. I think what you cannot underestimate, and certainly from our perspective, is the impact it's had in terms of new fans coming to Formula yeah, One, yeah. and the difference in the fans, and the difference in the intensity of the fans. Insane. I mean, we, you know, before you get obviously fans, but but fans who are more like petrol heads or engineering nerds and just love the technical side of it and had a bit of a relationship in terms of I follow that driver but but it was more about the teams yeah and then drive to survive happened and I remember last year we were in Budapest and actually funny enough he was going to the four seasons to do an interview for drive to survive but we were staying at a different hotel we went down into the car park and weirdly there the elevator brings you up outside the hotel there must have been a thousand people in a u-shape around the hotel entrance and we had come up behind them, so nobody had seen us. And I was like, there's a gap here. I said, you just need to run. And he sprinted. And when people saw him, it was like he was a member of the Beatles. It was just screaming, like like fanboy screaming. Yes. And it was just this weird, and that was probably the real change for me in terms of, this is different. This is really different. And And the level of, I guess, you know, like reality TV stars, you know, there's accounts following his relationship and there's accounts for this and there's accounts. And it's just that level of scrutiny and the, the intensity of it's very different. And people who might, and a complete opposite, who don't know a lot about the technical, but just love the drivers and the relationships with each other and the relationships with their families. And, you know, we were in LA and 
you know, for every 10 people that recognized him, eight people were saying, oh, you're that guy from that show. He's like, <laughs> he's like, no, I'm, I'm a, I'm a Formula One driver. But, but that's the ship. Now, look, it has its pros and it has its cons. It's obviously yeah. very good for the sport and the exposure and brands and promotion. And, you know, these are expensive cars to run. So that brings money for the team and opportunities for Alex. The difficulty for somebody like Alex is, who is an introvert, who finds that really exhausting. Who's who from a human element, you know, it, it just drains him. And we need to find strategies to be able to manage that, or we need to find reframes for his thought process around those interactions and having to do certain media appearances and turning up at the track and there's a hundred fans waiting for you, or five hundred fans waiting for you. Um, so we've done a lot of work around that and he's in a better place now. But it, it's certainly for somebody like Alex, it, it's been a big shift in, in terms of what it takes from him and his energy reserve across the race weekend. Absolutely, man. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, Patrick, if people want to follow your adventures as you globetrot and be Ric Flair around the world, where can they get it? Where can they get it? The only social media I have is Instagram and I have to check my tag. It's Patrick H underscore coach. That's, that's, that's it. Keep it, keep it there. Minimalistic, if I can. <laughs> That's it, man. But look, really, really appreciate you taking the time to chat to us. Um, all the best to you and Alex for the season ahead. And uh, look, hopefully, we'll be chatting to you again uh, sometime in the future as uh, Alex moves along with his career. And if you get back involved with, with Michael Conlon and the guys there, it'd be great to chat to you more about that as well. But for now, thanks yeah. so much, yeah, man, and all the best. No problem. Thanks for having me on. Big thanks to Patrick for that chat, man. That was fascinating. Yeah, it was so interesting. I still, as I said, I can't get me head around the the sort the the weight loss in the car over the course of a of a qualifying practice, qualifying and an actual race weekend is just bizarre to me. Like even the calorie count and uh, it's just mental. That's I like uh, when he was talking about it, and he, he mentioned at one point how like you know to, he has to predict and he can predict within two hundred and fifty grams what Alex's yeah. weight will be. And he's talking about in the morning, he weighs them and then he does a like a, a urine, uh, not a urine test. I can't remember exactly what he said. But I'm sitting there, I'm like, he must, they must know to like within a tiny amount, like the amount of fluid he's going to take on board and all that. Like, I, I do have palpitations now if I don't track me water in my fitness pal. Yeah, yeah. But I'd love, I'd love to have one of those testers where you wake up in the morning and it tells you how dehydrated or hydrated you are. I'd yeah. love to know that. I'd love to piss on something that says uh, you need. X amount of water today. I'd yeah. love that. Yeah, yeah. I I just judge it by the colour of me way. Yeah, same. Yeah, and I'm yeah. Like, that's a bit dark. I better drink a little bit extra today. Whereas these lads have it down to a science man. It's look, it's it's amazing. Like it's you know, the, and the the physical capabilities of those fellas uh is just it's bananas. But as you said, yeah, when he said that the, the Singapore Grand Prix, the humidity and everything else that they have to go through there, and he lost three and a half kilo in one race. Like Jesus, that's something else. Um, but yeah, great chat. Really enjoyed it, and uh, we'll we'll hopefully chat to Patrick again in the future um, about some of his other adventures and what he's up to and everything else. But a uh, long season ahead with Alex and the F one. We wish them all the best with that. Bueno, yes. Do we leave it there for that episode?
we will indeed. It was a great episode. I got loads from it anyway. Um, yeah. I'm not a huge F1 fan. So um, if you want to get any of our previous episodes, you can go to search or you can go to WTSpod.com or you can get us on Twitter at WTSpod or you can go to any podcast provider and just simply search WTSpod. We're on Podcast Republic, Podbean, Apple Podcast, anywhere and everywhere you get a podcast. Just put in WTSpod. He's at Danjo Murray. I'm at Merigamania. And until next time, clear eyes. Full hearts. Can't lose. <laughs>